I'm Paul Kennedy, and this is Ideas on the Thought of René Girard. I felt the more I tried to understand mimetic theory, the more I was led into the center of Christian thought. I can honestly say this has been the richest intellectual and spiritual current in my life. Many people, when they discover this theory, have a kind of eye-opening type of experience. And he's just uh, so foundational to my understanding and that I could never say enough about how important he has been in my in structure in my intellectual life. René Girard is the father of what he calls the mimetic theory, a theory that roots the origins of culture, the purpose of religion, and the chronic violence of human societies in our fundamental propensity for imitation. Many of Girard's readers and admirers, as you just heard, consider the theory a breakthrough, an interpretive master key to the understanding of human cultures. Sixteen years ago, some of these enthusiasts got together with Girard himself to create a forum in which Girard's thought could be discussed and developed. They named it the Colloquium on Violence and Religion. Twenty-five people attended that first meeting at Stanford University, where Girard then taught. Today, the organization encompasses a scholarly journal, a lively social network, and a large annual conference with up to 200 participants. This spring, for the first time, the Colloquium on Violence and Religion met in Canada at St. Paul University in Ottawa. David Cayley became our resident René Girard expert when he presented a popular ideas series on Girard's thought in 2001, and he was there for the Ottawa gathering. Here's his report. René Girard was born in the southern French city of Avignon in 1923. In 1947, he moved to the United States. He taught at Johns Hopkins, the State University of New York at Buffalo, and eventually at Stanford, where he retired and still lives. Throughout his career, he has thought and written against the grain of his times. With his very first book, published in French in 1961, he set himself against what he called the romantic lie. The romantic lie is the belief either that human desires derive directly from their objects, I want such and such a thing because of its inherently desirable character, or that they derive from some unique and original inner impulse. I want such and such a thing because of who I am. Not at all, says Girard. Except for certain basic instincts, we borrow our desires from one another. That's why he calls his approach the mimetic theory, from mimesis, the Greek word for imitation. Desire is modeled by others, whose social prestige makes me want the same things. Sometimes this imitation is negative, 
I try to make myself different rather than the same. Either way, I follow or react to a model. And this inevitable reciprocity, according to Girard, defines the fundamental human predicament. Because violence also spreads by imitation. And so long as its fatal tit-for-tat continues, it finds no limit. Girard addressed this theme of imitation gone bad when his turn came to speak at the Ottawa meeting of the Colloquium on Violence and Religion. And I want to begin with those remarks. I offer my hand, you take it, we shake hands. But if you don't take my hand, and if you put your hand behind your back, I will also put my hand behind my back. In other words, I will reciprocate a friendly action, you will reciprocate it too, but if there is no good reciprocity, there will immediately be a bad one, which takes over. And uh, this is what I think the specialists of human relations have not noticed enough, that far from lacking reciprocity, we cannot get out of it. But it's very easy to shift from good reciprocity to bad reciprocity and terribly difficult to shift from bad reciprocity to good reciprocity. And I think the problem of mankind is really precisely that, that uh, whichever reciprocity we have, you know, we are not going to be able to get out of it. It'll be a vicious circle into which things will always get worse and worse. Because even good reciprocity can become bad by force of repetition. We are very different from animals in that respect, you know. I think that reciprocity begins with a glance. We look at each other. And uh, this is a very striking thing in my view. When you look at, uh, you know, animals fighting on TV, even the two goats that hit precisely the center of the forehead and so forth, they don't look at each other. They don't look at each other before the fight, during the fight, or after the fight. There is a total lack of glance. This is so true that uh, Kipling had a special theory, which was typical Kipling. You know, he was a genius. But in the, in the Jungle Book, there is that story that animals cannot stand the glance of man, which is human superiority. It's not true. If you look a cat in the eyes too long, the cat will be bored, will go to sleep. <laughs> but men will never go to sleep. They'll rise to the challenge and they'll fight. I think it is the good and the bad of man, you know. It's inescapable. We are terribly mimetic and being mimetic inevitably we are open to conflict. René Girard speaking, a little too close to the microphone, I'm afraid, at the Colloquium on Violence and Religion. The difference between human beings and other animals is a crucial element in Girard's theory. The fights of non-human creatures end when one of the combatants submits, and a pecking order, as one says, is established. They will not kill their own kind. But human beings, Girard says, have outgrown this limit and do not know when to stop. What is vengeance? 
Vengeance is doing what the other guy does. Always the same thing. But it's the ultimate in bad reciprocity. To stop it by killing the opponent. And all men know how to do that. And only men do that. Because animals don't have intraspecific murder. So, you know, when people say, oh, humans are violent and so forth, animals are much less violent, they are right. If we didn't have culture in the human sense, there would be no humanity. Humanity would have destroyed itself at birth. When the mimetic power rose in the relationship between animals, and we know that it rises, and we know it today scientifically through the mirror neurons. The higher you get, the more mirror neurons you have, and the more mirror neurons you have with men, the more you do the same thing. But this doing the same thing includes enough violence to kill. And we call it vengeance. The human species is the only one which threatens its own existence from birth. Human beings possess a unique power of self-destruction, René Girard says. But this is not, in his view, because we are more aggressive than other creatures, but because we are more imaginative. Much ink has been spilled on the problem of human aggression. But it has been Girard's genius to see that the real issue is not aggression as such, but rather the endless mimetic ping-pong by which it is reproduced. It's so easy to imagine that aggression comes from the other. We insist on defining violence as aggression. Why do we want to define violence as aggression? Because we never feel aggressive ourselves. And we are not. We are mimetic. We imitate the aggression of the guy in front of us. Or at least we make him feel that we understand his aggressive intent. We don't feel aggressive at all, but we show him we understand he's aggressive. And he interprets that as our aggression, and vice versa, and so forth. And of course, we talk only about love, but we practice only violence as we talk of love. That's why the mimetic theory is a critical theory. By critical, it means it suspects you know, the modern world is essentially critical. And it's very easy to talk a good game of nonviolence. All cultures know that, how to do that. But they all fight. Therefore, we have to find something better. And there have been, one could say, three great attempts to solve the problem in the modern world. I would say one is Marx, who says, it's the economic goods that we cannot divide, we cannot share, and that's why we fight. The second one is Freud, who said, no, it's really sexual objects that we cannot share, and that's the real problem. And the third one is Nietzsche, who said a little bit the same thing in a more abstract way, who said it's power that we cannot share. Nietzsche, in a way, understood less than the other two because the other two took the need for peace for granted, and they were right. Whereas Nietzsche said, eternal war is fine with me. Well, the mimetic theory is a third attempt, and is trying to think in mimetic terms, in terms of what human relations really are to be as virulent 
and dangerous as they are. Do we really understand that? Without the mimetic theory is, is my question. Are human relations, you know, something which can be described purely rationally as enlightenment humanism believed that you could do away with religion completely and then you could establish the perfect society on a purely rational basis. I think that our time is very important because it's beginning to realize it cannot be. It's not possible. So the question is, can the mimetic theory make a contribution? That's what we are trying to find out. René Girard addressing the Colloquium on Violence and Religion at its meeting at St. Paul University in Ottawa. His remarks provide a thumbnail sketch of what might be called the ground floor of the mimetic theory. The second story is Girard's supposition that religion originates as a means of controlling the potential for runaway violence that he's just been discussing. The first human communities, he reasons, must have found a way to overcome their chronic violence, or they never would have survived. And the way they found, in his view, was the mechanism of the scapegoat, or the surrogate victim. When all turned against one, these first communities must repeatedly have discovered, peace and order returned. This discovery was then institutionalized as sacrifice. Human sacrifice at first, then animal sacrifices, and other rituals that symbolically reenacted the beneficial, life-giving death. Girard derived this theory from his reading of mythology, anthropology, and ancient Greek tragedy. But mythology, he said, disguised the founding murder. In myth, the sacrificial victim is always guilty. Only in the Jewish scriptures, and later in Christianity, was the innocence of the victim recognized, and sacrifice gradually overcome. The Gospels tell exactly the same story as many myths, Schirach says, but they tell it from a transformed point of view. The myth, they have all something in common, which is that they read that story from the point of view of the mob. The victim is guilty. Oedipus has committed parasite and incest. Even Freud believes in it, whereas Christianity doesn't. Christianity and Judaism before, which is terribly important, they all interpret the story from the point of view of the victim. The victim is innocent and not guilty. It's not just friendship for Jesus or friendship for Joseph or friendship for Job that you give a voice to the victim in the Bible. It's to tell the truth. It's a mob that is wrong. It's the crowd. It's the people who are wrong. That's why Christianity is hated in our world. Because far from being, you know, the popular religion and so forth, it's the anti-popular religion. It denounces what the crowd believes. The crowd always believes in the guilt of the victim. The Bible and the Gospels never. For René Girard, it is not too much to say that the Bible is the hinge on which history turns. Jesus says in the Gospel of Matthew that he is revealing, quote, things hidden since the foundation of the world. 
and Girard believes that this is quite literally the case. What Jesus reveals is that culture is built on a lie, a concealed murder. Mythology maintains this concealment. Oedipus is just one of many guilty gods and heroes in mythology. The Judeo-Christian writings unveil the founding murder and proclaim the innocence of the arbitrary victim. In an age when religions are often treated as equivalent, all equally meaningful, or by the same token, equally meaningless, Girard's view may be thought scandalous. He rests it on two pillars. The first is an appeal to the text itself. Read it and see, he says. And the second is the unique and unprecedented character of the modern world, which he believes to be an effect of biblical religion. Modern societies, he says, are uniquely concerned with victims and at the same time threatened with the unprecedented violence that can result when the old mechanism for controlling violence, the scapegoat, is exposed and disabled. René Girard recognizes, of course, that as soon as Christianity became an establishment, it began to behave like an establishment. He claims no special virtue for Christians, and he's quite aware that when sensitivity to victims is institutionalized, new evils can result. All he says is that the Gospels embody a revolutionary point of view, the point of view of the victim rather than the persecutor, and the individual rather than the crowd. People don't understand what I'm talking about because they don't understand the most fundamental thing about scapegoating. When people come and tell me, oh, I understand fully your story, your business, you know, you cannot believe how scapegoated I am. I said, <laughs> go with this is everybody's story. I want to hear the story which is nobody's story. And it's a story of Peter when he realizes he's betrayed Jesus. He realizes that the scapegoater is he and that Jesus is a scapegoat. And Paul, Peter is the first conversion in the Gospels, and Paul is the last one. And what is the question that Paul hears? Why do you persecute me? For many Christians, René Girard's way of reading the Bible has been itself a revelation. One of the ways, for example, in which the crucifixion of Jesus has been commonly understood by Christians is as the paying of a debt Adam and Eve's disobedience so offended God that only the death of his son could settle the score and restore his goodwill. It's an alarming picture of God, but this was and is the standard doctrine of substitutionary atonement, first advanced by Anselm of Canterbury in the Middle Ages and still affirmed by many Christians. Chicard offers a very different account, says Diana Culbertson. Diana Culbertson is a Dominican nun, a professor at Kent State University in Ohio, and a founding member of the Colloquium on Violence and Religion. It's not that Jesus took the rap instead of us. It's the fact that we did to Jesus what we secretly want to do to God. God has always been our scapegoat, and Jesus was our chance, in a sense, to get back at God. I mean, there's a lot of self-hatred in human beings, and we project that hatred onto God, and we think that it's God who hates us. We're really hating ourselves. 
And I talk about the crucifixion in terms of here is Jesus within all of this self-hatred and cleansing us of our self-hatred and saying, I will go through this to show you that God does not hate you, that God loves you. And in earlier mythologies, for example, in Ovid, there's a story of the gods, you know, Mercury and somebody. And they, they come down to the, the village to see who's faithful. And they're turned away, you know. They're not given hospitality until a little woman offers them hospitality and she gives them her last oil and wine and so forth. And they rise up and say, we are gods, you know, and they destroy everybody that did not receive them. Now, this story is in Greek drama. It's in uh, the Odyssey. You know, as Odysseus rises up and destroys those that he's been secretly observing who were not faithful to him, the resurrection deconstructs that whole mythology. Jesus rises from the dead, and he doesn't destroy those who rejected him. He says to Mary Magdalene, go to my brothers. These are the people that abandoned him. Go to my brothers and tell them, I go to your God and to my God. And suddenly the whole mythology of the punishing God is deconstructed by the resurrection which is the story of the God whom we tried to destroy and who came back and said, I am alive and I am still with you and you are forgiven. And this releases us to live in the love of God without fear. What Diana Culbertson says here is influenced not just by René Girard, but also by a Jesuit theologian called Raimund Schwager, who died in 2004. It was Schwager who took the ideas of René Girard into theology. Back in the 1970s, Schwager read Girard's Violence and the Sacred and recognized its profound implications for Christian theology. Girard's book, he said, had prepared the way for, quote, a quantum leap in our understanding of the biblical writings. In a book called, in English, Must There Be Scapegoats?, Schwager took on the two problems that he felt Girard had broached and that liberal modern theology had ducked. First, the extraordinary prevalence of violence and deceit in the Bible. And second, the apparently split personality of God. At one moment, a loving father. At the next, a raging serial killer whose victims on the Day of Judgment, the prophet Jeremiah says, will extend from one end of the earth to the other. Petra steinmeier Puzel studied theology with Raymond Schwager at the University of Innsbruck, where she now teaches. At the Colloquium on Violence and Religion, she spoke to me about Girard's dialogue with theology and with her teacher. In theology, there is a long tradition of not knowing how to deal with passages about the violence of God or the wrath of God, especially Old Testament scholars long hesitated to write about that topic. And Raimund Schwager tried to explain why is God described in such different ways. And then for him, Girard's mimetic theory became very important. And he tried, for example, to explain those different passages as mixed texts in a way where there are sacrificial texts interwoven with real revelation. And it becomes more and more clear as tradition develops that God isn't the violent God, but that God is really the merciful Father. 
What is going on in the Bible, according to Raymond Schwager, is an ever-increasing recognition that the violence attributed to God actually comes from humanity. This recognition begins in the Psalms, the Prophets, and the Book of Job, and continues, Petra Steiner Pursel says, in the Gospels. Also in the New Testament, there are a lot of judgment sayings of Jesus, and it is always very difficult how to address them or how to deal with them. And for a very long time, New Testament scholars also tried just to say those judgment sayings, they were not said by Jesus himself, but were more or less invented by the New Testament community in order to, in a way, defend themselves from the others. So. Schwager said, you can't do that. So you have to take them seriously, and you have to take them seri seriously as Jesus' own words and Jesus' own sayings. And for that, he developed his dramatic concept of theology, um, distinguishing different situations in which Jesus was acting. So he said, the first act is when Jesus comes and he just preaches the gospel of the merciful Father that can be called Abba by everyone. and. But then people didn't take this up or, or they didn't uh, react accordingly to what Jesus preached. And so in order to tell them what is at stake when they don't accept that, there were Jesus' judgment sayings in order to tell them, hey, listen, if you're not listening to me, if, you're, if you keep stuck in your own image of God as a violent God, then you will end up in those uh, situations of condemning others and also being condemned yourself by others. So that would be the second act within uh, Schwager's dramatic concept. And the third one would be that Jesus, who announced the judgment, is judged himself, not by God, but by the other human beings, by his opponents. And that he himself, as he represents the Father on earth, he himself doesn't react in a violent way, but he himself renounces violence and lets himself be killed in a way. So that was the third act then, according to Schwager. And then the fourth one is the real judgment of the Heavenly Father, which is the resurrection of Christ. And in a way, this judgment is not only a judgment for Jesus saying he was right and he was doing what I wanted him to do, but also a way of judgment in favor of the opponents of Jesus because they were freed also from their protections of a violent God in a way. And, and then the fifth act, of course, uh, the sending of the Holy Spirit as the real counterforce to the satanic figure because Satan is always the accuser, the one who brings people to accuse each other and to condemn each other. And then the Paracletos, the, the Paraclete, the Holy Spirit, as the one who really is the advocate of the victim. So that was the model Raimund Schwager developed, also drawing very much on, on mimetic theory, and which I think is really imp an important model in, in modern theology in order to get along with those uh, texts of on one hand, uh, judgment sayings, sayings on the violent God, and on the other hand, the merciful and loving Father. Raymond Schwager and René Girard maintained a fruitful dialogue for nearly 30 years, and Innsbruck became, 
as Girard joked to me at the colloquium, the European capital of the mimetic theory. Influence in this dialogue ran in both directions. For example, Girard, in his early writings, had argued that the term sacrifice should be applied only to scapegoating rituals and not to the crucifixion of Christ, which turns these rituals inside out by revealing the victim's innocence. Schwager convinced him to retain the traditional Christian use of the term. Wolfgang Pollover has been a student of both men, as well as a colleague of Schwager's at the University of Innsbruck, where he's a professor of theology. He initially sided with Girard, he says, but was then persuaded that what he calls a liberal rejection of sacrifice might be worse than sacrifice itself. I could tell you quite a lot of examples, historical examples, where, for instance, the European conquistadors in Latin America killed massively the indigenous people there because they accused them correctly of being representatives of a religion and a society based on human sacrifices. But the killing they did was just by figures and numbers, enormously beyond any human sacrifices of those indigenous culture. So there is a danger if you think you can overcome sacrifice by rejecting sacrifice, increasing sacrificial victims. So the question is, what does sacrifice mean? And we have to distinguish between different concepts. So in 1995, we asked René Girard to write an article for a festschrift for Raymond Schwager's 60th birthday. And he wrote a very important essay in which he says, well, when we think it is better to not use the term sacrifice for the Christian cross, for Christ's cross, we might fall into a liberal trap thinking that it's very easy to overcome sacrifices, meaning there is a neutral ground and whoever understands can just leave the world of sacrifice and everything is fine. But as long as human peoples are by mimetic desire becoming rivals, are in conflicts and so on, you need to risk something. So if you follow a Christian or pacifist nonviolent way, it means you have to take a risk on you. And if you use for that taking a risk on you, the concept of sacrifice, you at least would not suggest to other people that this way out of a sacrificial system is an easy way without blood or without risk. Because people who superficially say we can go beyond sacrifice are most of the time representatives of ideologies which really cause much more bloodshed and don't realize that what we are now doing is even make the situation worse. A facile belief that sacrifice has been overcome can lead, Wolfgang Palliver says, to more rather than less violence. This was one reason why Girard accepted Schwager's view that one should still speak of the cross as a sacrifice. Another point on which they were in agreement was in understanding the logic of the Christian Gospels as apocalyptic, or all or nothing. Apocalypse, in Greek, means disclosure, uncovering. Jesus, in his life, death, and resurrection, uncovers the scapegoat mechanism 
he exposes it to the light, and in doing so, he renders it ineffective. He challenges humanity to live without scapegoats, to stop blaming God and face its own violence. But this makes the violence worse, even as it sets people free. Things, as Girard once said to me, get better and worse at the same time. That's the apocalyptic logic that Girard points to in our world. And he wonders, as he has often said, how a world faced with the fire and ice of global warming and nuclear winter has forgotten the scriptures that predicted them. You're listening to Ideas on CBC Radio 1 and on Sirius Satellite Radio. Our subject is the thought of the French scholar René Girard and the organization to which his thought gave rise, the Colloquium on Violence and Religion. The Colloquium met earlier this year at St. Paul University in Ottawa. David Cayley was there. As Raymond Schwager realized 30 years ago, René Girard's way of reading the Bible has extensive implications for Christian theology and for anyone interested in understanding a book that continues to make waves. In the conversation between Girard and theology, one of the most extensively discussed issues has been Girard's theory of human nature. Does he regard human beings as incorrigibly violent? Is he saying something akin to the view of the early modern English political philosopher Thomas Hobbes, who says that our original condition is a war of all against all? Wolfgang Palliver doesn't think so. He wrote his dissertation on Hobbes, and he recognizes the parallels between Girard and Hobbes. But over the years, he says, he has come to recognize a crucial difference. The essential thing in Thomas Hobbes is that he said what eternal goods, what eternal life means for our way of doing politics has no meaning at all. There might be something like heaven, there might be something of a transcendent world, there might be transcendent goods in a time to come, but that has no meaning at all for our life today. So that is a rejection of the old Thomistic concept in which St. Thomas and the whole Augustine and the whole Western Christian tradition always said the ultimate longing and the ultimate aim of our deep desires should be directed towards the eternal goods. And the interesting thing about uh, desiring eternal goods, the more we desire those eternal goods together, the better and more interesting they became and we do not be led into rivalry automatically. But with all temporal goods, rivalry is unavoidable. So the philosophy of Thomas Hobbes, and in, in this respect, he's a representative of more or less of 90% of modern philosophy and modern thinking, that he says the distinction between temporal goods and eternal goods is no longer of any importance. So they are only temporal goods. And as soon as you understand that we human beings are mimetic beings and are limited to temporal goods, there is no way out of violence. You can shift violence to different levels. You can overcome it technologically, but we all, you always have to put 
violence into certain structures. So violence will be part of human life and politics in an ontological way. It's not possible to overcome it at all. And that's a complete rejection of Christian biblical tradition, religious tradition in the broadest sense. And uh, I think the modern world uh, more or less has completely been absorbed. So when that became clearer to me, I called Girard and he immediately quoted to me a famous passage in Dante's Divine Comedy, in where Dante says, well, as long as we look just on the earth to our neighbors, we are always caught in envious relationships. We have to look to eternal goods because the, the real paradox is that on the level of love, on the level of eternal goods, the more we focus, the more we aim at the same objects, the same goals, the better they become, the more attractive they become. So it's a reversal of our innerworldly relationships. The difference between Girard and modern political philosophy, according to Wolfgang Palaver, is that Girard recognizes that there are goods for which we need not compete, goods that do not grow scarce when more people seek them. Girard revives the tradition that Hobbes rejected, and at the same time, Palaver says, sheds new light on it. I started to study mimetic theory about 25 years ago, and I, I wrote a quite major 450 pages German book on mimetic theory, and I got very good reviews, but some reviewers justly said there is no critique of mimetic theory in it. And my answer to that is, I mean, I could say here and there, there is a little bit what, what may be wrong, but I have no general objections because I felt the more I tried to understand mimetic theory, the more I was led into the center of Christian thought. It opened up for me a whole world of understanding, and I feel I'm still in the very beginning to understand all the implications which follow. So why should I write something critical superficially when suddenly so many things open up and you are led deeper into the Christian tradition than ever before? Wolfgang Palaver thinks that René Girard's mimetic theory has opened up Christian tradition and made it newly available to contemporary people. For him, as he just said, Girard is working at the center of Christian thought. But other members of the Colloquium on Violence and Religion still have questions about Girard's account of human origins and the view of human nature it implies. The most prominent of those who have raised these questions from within the circle of Girard's admirers is Rebecca Adams, a literary scholar and a charter member of the Colloquium. She feels that René Girard's defining books overwhelmingly connect mimetic desire with violence. Particularly problematic for her are Girard's speculations about human origins in a book called Things Hidden Since the Foundation of the World. There, Girard supposes that the invention of culture must have coincided with the discovery of the scapegoat mechanism and the restoration of peace by a collective murder. In Things Hidden Since the Foundation of the World, I think it's fairly clear that um, his idea about how mimesis escalated within some kind of proto-human group really did imply 
that the, the moment of coming to a conscious awareness and subjectivity and group identity as human beings did occur simultaneously with an act of collective murder. It sounds very negative. And that, that is the issue about whether mimetic desire is good or not or is uh, creative or generative or not. Because if sacrifice is the beginning of culture and mimetic desire always leads to violence, murder, and sacrifice, you know, and sacrifice then the beginning of human culture and subjectivity is, is murder coming out of mimetic desire. That makes mimetic desire sound like it couldn't possibly be fundamentally good. Rebecca Adams got a chance to raise the question of whether mimetic desire inevitably leads to rivalry and violence in a long interview she recorded with René Girard in the early 90s. It was published in a journal called Religion and Literature, of which she was then the managing editor in 1993. Girard answered unequivocally that mimetic desire is intrinsically good. He wanted it made clear that mimetic desire is itself good. He says, yes, um, I end up talking about the rivalrous kind most of the time. And so maybe it sounds as if mimetic desire is always bad. But he says, no, it's not. Uh, there's nothing better than the imitation of a child. And Jesus says that it is good. Imitate me, imitate the Father. This is all in the interview. So the problem became not his statement that it was good, but trying to reconcile those statements with things he had said in the past. Rebecca Adams appreciated René Girard's clarification about the intrinsic goodness of mimetic desire, but she still felt that something more was needed than a nod to its goodness in the midst of an overwhelming emphasis on its bad consequences. The creative or generative side of mimetic desire, she thought, ought to have much fuller play in the mimetic theory. I eventually had a breakthrough when I watched an episode of Star Trek. (laughs) And it was an episode called The Perfect Mate. And it was an episode about a a creature, an alien creature, who has nothing but mimetic desire. She became whatever the men around her were wanting her to be and she was going to be married off to somebody on some diplomatic mission. And so it was the perfect thought experiment about mimetic desire. And in the course of the Star Trek episode, I saw the solution to the philosophical problem that I had with theory, and that was that when Captain Picard takes her away from the rest of the people on the ship and has to sequester her, but he's concerned about her well-being, she eventually bonds with him and is imprinted with him. And although her desire is completely mimetic, Picard has desired her selfhood or her subjectivity. And so because he did not desire her as an object, she became a person completely from within mimetic desire. And so this was the breakthrough that mimetic desire did not always have to be negative because this was an instance of someone desiring the well-being or the selfhood of the other person. And when you did that, you had a creative form of mimetic desire. Creative mimetic desire, for Rebecca Adams, is desire for the good of the other. If I desire your good, you can imitate my desire without falling into rivalry with me. 
This is not a proposition that I think René Girard would disagree with, but Adams still insists that it is not sufficiently acknowledged in Girard's writings. Her call for a greater emphasis on the creative side of mimetic desire exerted a shaping influence on the Ottawa meeting of the Colloquium on Violence and Religion, or COVER, as it's called for short. The conference was called Mimesis, Creativity, and Reconciliation. The theme also reflected the preoccupations of the conference's host, Vern Redekop, another charter member of COVER, and the head of the Conflict Studies Program at St. Paul University, where the conference was held. He's written about what he calls mimetic structures of blessing, and he credits Rebecca Adams as one of his inspirations. Rebecca Adams presented a paper at Loyola College at a cover conference in which she defined love in terms of mimetic desire and put on the agenda this notion that mimetic desire was not just about violence and rivalry but that it could have positive life-giving dimensions to it. So that got me thinking about these positive dimensions and the use of mimetic theory then in reconciliation. And uh, it proved to be really fruitful as I worked out my own framework for reconciliation and as I developed the concept of mimetic structures of blessing because I had this idea that human beings are not just violent, they're not only mimetic structures of violence, but we do experience lots of mutually satisfying relationships. And I was drawn to the word blessing for a number of reasons. First of all, a natural word would have been peace, but peace for many has the connotation of tranquility, nothing's happening. And I'd done this stuff on human identity needs, and I knew that we as human beings have this basic need for challenge, for stimulation, for excitement, for imagining new things, for creativity. And I also knew from the work I was doing in the field of conflict studies that conflict has this positive side to it because a lot of times it's through not overt, violent, destructive conflict, but the clash of ideas or the clash of interests or the clash of our understandings. When we work them out, That's the basis for new insight. So the question is, how far can we go in terms of of thinking through the positive side of mimetic desire? Because that was not really fully done by Girard. And Rebecca hinted at it and had some key insights. But I had the sense that there must be more out there. Thinking through the positive side of mimetic desire was what the Ottawa meeting of the Colloquium on Violence and Religion tried to do. As it went on, I became aware of a certain tension between the twist that Vern Redekop, Rebecca Adams, and others have tried to give to mimetic theory and a somewhat less optimistic version of Girard's thought. Gil Bailey, an independent educator and longtime member of COVER, spoke for this view at the conference. Yesterday morning... Robin made the comment that uh, Girardian theory and indeed Christianity has a gap that has to be filled, namely uh, that it doesn't provide us a mechanism for eliminating violence. And no one laughed. No one even seemed embarrassed by the assumption 
that we're going to eliminate violence. If you look in the New Testament for some corroboration for the hope that we're going to eliminate violence, you won't find it. As a matter of fact, you'll find Jesus saying, things are going to get worse and worse. So the question is, what is the alternative to violence? We have assumed that the alternative to violence is something called peace. But the alternative to violence is order. And order has two sources, really. One is coercion, legal or physical coercion. And the other is holiness. And so we live in a world that's never going to be holy enough to do without coercion, legal or physical coercion. I think it finally comes down to that. The caution that Gil Bailey expressed to the conference was one he also shared with me in an interview. His worry, he said, was that well-intended attempts to make mimetic theory a force for good might end up compromising the commitment on which he feels cover, the Colloquium on Violence and Religion, should be founded. Discovering truth. The truth is something you do. And the word truth is, in English, you know, comes from the word troth. You know, it means it has to do with a relationship, has to do with a commitment. Uh, so it's not an abstract propositional truth. But I think we have to have truth as our goal. And it'll be truth that we do, but on the other hand, you don't want to substitute something else for truth. I wouldn't want to put peace in the place of truth. I wouldn't want to put reconciliation in the place of truth. I think what cover ought to be about is getting to the truth. And that often means scrutinizing things, thinking about things, clarifying, especially clarifying one's categories, trying to see what's actually happening as, as opposed to seeing something according to the spirit of the age. In other words, to try to interpret the real thing that's happening and so on. So I think, I think a certain amount of intellectual rigor that's not overly influenced by a preordained moral or sentimental position is very important. And I, so I would be a little cautious about too much of a turn towards uh, activism. Gil Bailey is hesitant about the potential of what Vern Redekop earlier called the positive side of mimetic desire. Two issues divide them, I think. The first is the problem of human nature, with which Rebecca Adams has been concerned. When she interviewed René Girard 13 years ago, she told him that the idea that culture begins with a murder amounts to what she calls a fall without creation. Girard answered by saying that his theory of the violent birth of culture does not impugn the goodness of creation itself, but corresponds rather to the biblical story of Cain, who murders his brother Abel and then goes on, tellingly in Girard's view, to found the first city. Adams was not persuaded, and she has continued to argue for a reformulation of the mimetic theory which recognizes the creative role that she thinks mimesis must have played in human cultures from the beginning. This debate will continue. The second issue has to do with the perennial tension between understanding the world and changing it, and this debate too will continue. Meanwhile, what really impressed me about the colloquium on violence and religion was how easily these differences were contained by the conference's overall atmosphere of friendliness, 
warmth, and mutual consideration. Some of this tone is due, I'm sure, to the courtesy, humility, and playful humor that René Girard himself has imparted to these occasions over the years. Some of it may stem also from the way the mimetic theory encourages people to avoid rivalry and competition. But however it has come about, the colloquium on violence and religion, as one longtime member told me, is a bit like a family. A family united by its conviction that René Girard has made a fundamental contribution to human self-understanding. On Ideas, you've listened to Part 2 of On Violence and Religion by David Cayley. The program was recorded at the annual meeting of the Colloquium on Violence and Religion at St. Paul University in Ottawa. Our thanks to conference organizer Vern Redekop and his staff for their hospitality and help. For Ideas, Bernie Lucht, Dave Field, and Liz Nage assisted. You can get tapes or CDs of the series for $26. Call 416-205-7367 and use your credit card. Write to us at Box 500, Station A, Toronto, M5W1E6, or email ideas at cbc.ca. If you want to find out what's coming up on Ideas, you can sign up for our weekly online newsletter. Just go to our website at cbc.ca slash ideas and click on the link for weekly newsletter. We're now podcasting Select Ideas programs. For information on how to subscribe to CBC Podcasts, please go to cbc.ca slash podcasting. The executive producer of Ideas is Bernie Lucht. I'm Paul Kennedy. Coming up on CBC Radio 1 and on Sirius Satellite Radio, the hourly news.